With your instruction, I understand life. That's why I hate false propaganda. I'm going to invite you to stand. So each week we gather and the Lord welcomes us, as Jeremy even uh, mentioned. The Lord welcomes us into this space, into his family. He welcomes us here together each Sunday morning. And as Lily just read for us, we gather together under his name, welcomed by him, living in his kingdom, according to his ways and his his precepts that we, as those who love him and follow his way of life, find as sweet as honey. So let's begin together this morning just singing and returning that welcome, reciprocating that welcome and inviting God and welcoming him into our lives. There's nothing worth more come close nothing can compare you are our living hope your presence Lord I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of love when my heart becomes free and my shame is undone your presence Lord Holy Spirit you are Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for. To be overcome by your presence, Lord. There's nothing worth more that will ever come close. Nothing can compare. You are our living hope. Your presence, Lord. Oh. We've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves. When my heart becomes free and my shame is undone, your presence, Lord. Oh, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood. 
you if you're helping with kids if you are a little one welcome to make your way to the back now Set free. I've been set free. 
this morning for where we've where we've come from lord that you've poured out your amazing grace on us and redeemed our lives and restored and renewed our hearts and our minds and so lord we just invite you into this place into our home to our hearts 
Lord, may all that we do here this morning be for you and for your name's sake. In Christ's name, amen. I'm gonna invite Allison to the front. She's gonna lead us in a reading. Jesus answered by telling a story. There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road, but when he saw the man, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite, a religious man, like an assistant priest, showed up. He also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan, one of comprised lineage and irregular faith, traveling down the road, came upon the injured man. When he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. The Samaritan gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll pay you on my way back. Thanks, Austin. If you have your uh, Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 10. That's where we're going to spend our time uh, this morning before we eat together. Um, and again, you, um, we've kind of been in this season where we're looking at Jesus' meals with others and uh, him eating with others. And so you may be wondering a little bit, what does this story have to do um, with eating together? What does the story of this famous story about serving those in need have to do with um, what Jesus said he's come to do, both to seek and to save the lost? I hear the Benavidez is at home. Um, and um, to seek to save the lost, to ransom uh, those who, um, who are captive and oppressed into freedom. What does this story have to do with how Jesus went about that eating and drinking, as he said, the son of man came to do. Well, first of all, um, I, let me argue this, that uh, I don't think this story is about serving, that this is not a story about service. Rather, this is a story about hospitality. We often hear the word hospitality as a willingness to entertain for an evening, maybe a meal. Maybe when we talk about eating and drinking together and having meals together, the word hospitality comes to mind to us. And we think about a set time where we've prepared something, we invite someone into our home, uh, we make sure they feel welcomed and enjoy and they're served and then they leave, right? So that's kind of the way we think of hospitality. Or maybe we think of hospitality as displaying civility, like uh, just being uh, conscientious and honoring of others, um, making sure that we kind of think about what's going on in the context around us when we um, invite other people into our lives and into our space. Uh, or maybe we even think of hospitality as an industry, right? Um, this, this thing that's geared about giving people what they want, what they need, what makes them feel um, the best, right? Um, but if you remember, and maybe you don't, but love it, so let me just say it, but it, maybe you remember that in ancient Near Eastern cultures, um, in the first century in which the, this story was told, and really in reality in most modern non-American cultures, especially in Eastern cultures and Middle Eastern cultures, um, the concept of hospitality was and is rather holistic. Hospitality or love of stranger, which is actually what the Greek word means. The word hospitality means love of stranger. 
Um, it captures quite well the image of the Samaritan's action along the Jericho Road. It's a, it's a holistic way of engaging somebody. You see, the, the one with the muddy bloodlines, a Samaritan um, who had questionable relationships to God. Um, if you know anything about the Samaritans at all, they're, they're a group of, of um, somewhat mixed lineage, right? They have Jewish history, but, but after the exile, they were the ones that kind of were left behind. And so they tended to, to marry um, people from other nations and tribes that had been moved into the area after Babylon conquered um, Israel. Um, but they still had this like sense of Judaism, of Jewishness, of, of Yahweh worship, but they didn't think that you worshiped God in Jerusalem anymore. They thought you worshiped God in a different place. And so if you remember Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well, where she's kind of like trying to go back and forth with Jesus about, hey, you say you worship in the temple. We say we worship on this mountain. Um, so we're, we're not really quite the same, same God, different places. That's kind of the idea of the Samaritan. So in a Jewish mind, um, the Samaritan was not just, he was, they were muddied in their heritage and they were muddied in their faith, right? And so um, it wasn't that they were completely different, but it was actually kind of worse, like that they kind of mixed these, these, uh, this, their history and their faith to a place where they really were kind of not well-liked and not super acceptable um, in, in this world. But here we are, this guy with muddy bloodlines, questionable relationship to God. He assumed the dignity of the person who was injured the dignity of the one who needed welcome and care. And we know this because he moved towards the stranger, right? He saw he had compassion for him. And, and, he, and he did something for the stranger that all um, uh, acts of hospitality, uh, hospitality in the first century would have done. He washed the stranger. He bandaged his wounds and he washed him. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, Chaz was talking about one of these scenes um, in which Jesus is welcomed in the home of a Pharisee and then this really um, disreputable woman comes in and cleanses the feet of Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus responded to the Pharisee when the Pharisee was, was kind of put off by this action? Do you remember what he told the Pharisee that he didn't do? That he didn't wash Jesus' feet? He didn't, he didn't anoint his head with oil? He didn't give him a kiss? All these are actions of hospitality. These are actions that help a guest, a stranger, move into the place of an honored guest, into a place of dignity. It brings a person into camaraderie, companionship within this kind of act of hospitality. And in every Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern culture, like this would have been the, the first thing you did. And so we see even in this story that, that the Samaritan does this. He takes a step towards a stranger and brings him into the act of a guest by bandaging him. And this, again, um, the true neighbor, the Samaritan, not only welcomes this stranger into the place of guests, of honor, of dignity, but he also opens himself up more than his home. He opens himself completely up to him. He exposes himself to danger along the road. When we talk about hospitality, it's not just opening, in a, again, in the, the time when Jesus was telling the story, it's not just the idea of having someone over for a meal. It's inviting them into your life, into your house. So it may be for a night, it may be for a time, but the whole idea is that your whole life is opened up to them. And in some ways, the, the Samaritan does this too. He opens himself to the danger along the road. The same bandits could have been there. Um, it, obviously, that was something that happened a lot. He opened himself up to ridicule because he was going to take this man into a Jewish town. And he was a Samaritan who wasn't accepted in a Jewish town. He opens himself up to the persecution and the prejudice that he's experienced his entire life. He opens himself up to personal cost. I mean, we know it in the story, that, right, that he pays for the end. He gives, leaves more money 
and says he'll come back and pay any more. But that also opens him up to the, the opportunity to be taken advantage of, right? Especially in a context where he was an outsider and he was one who uh, had prejudice against him. So, I mean, he really did kind of set himself up to be super vulnerable just by stopping and helping this man by showing hospitality. All this he did so that the stranger that was made into an honored guest had the potential to become a friend. Because you see, again, the story tells us that while he, he not only bandaged the man, took care of the immediate need, he then took the man to a place where he could be cared for. He sat with him through the night, through probably the worst part of where this man was probably waking up into what was going on, wondering what was going to happen to him. Yes, he left, but remember what he said, that he was coming back. That he would come back, not just to pay the bill, but he would come back to check on this man. That this man, was, it wasn't just a pass by. I met the need, I go on, and I think no more about this person. There was an expectation that there would be a continuation of relationship, or at least a potential for it. The aptly named Good Samaritan did all this to his unintended companion so that that unintended companion might have a place to rest, a place for nourishment, a safe place to become whole, to be restored. Indeed, the Samaritan more than served. He wholly and truly welcomed the injured man. He loved him. That's what hospitality is. It's this showing dignity, opening up yourself, exposing yourself, making yourself vulnerable, not just sharing what you have, but, but making yourself vulnerable to a person so that they might actually find rest, nourishment, and a place to become whole. Whether it's for a night stay, for two weeks, or for their entire life. Showing hospitality or love of strangers, what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is what Jesus told the story for, right? Treating them with dignity, honoring them through service that helps them move from stranger to guest to spiritual friend. Opening and giving of ourselves to them so that they might find rest, nourishment, and a safe place to be whole in Jesus. That's what hospitality is. So when we reduce the story to serving the needy, which, by the way, is a noble, necessary labor, right? Like Jesus isn't saying that this, and I'm not saying that this story negates that reality, that that's a part of our life. It's just serving needs that are right in front of us. But when we reduce the story to that, we miss something about what God is actually up to in the world and how he is going about it. But when we can appreciate the holistic picture that Jesus is painting for us, we can recognize that, in, that what Jesus is doing in challenging our perception is that he is illuminating our role in the kingdom. Specifically, he's making us priests, holy priests, and what it means to be priests. Because you see, it's no accident that in the story that we just read in Luke chapter 10, um, that, that Jesus uses a priest and a Levite as the passerbyers in the story. He could have used any, anybody. He could have used a Pharisee, um, which was a, a, a lay um, Jewish person of, of, you know, moral superiority and of dedication to the law. Um, he, he could have used a whole number of scribes who knew the law, but he didn't. He used priests and Levites, ones who worked in the temple, in the place where God was supposed to be, as ones who are supposed to be the ones who help people meet God. So Jesus intentionally used a priest and a Levite to tell this story. He, he, the story. Both men were engrossed in life where God played a significant role and where they too had a part to play. Their role in the community was to help people know God, connect with God, respond to God, be obedient to God, follow God. There was, there was no more direct connection to God than to be a priest. 
priest. It was the highest and of the inherited and holy callings in the religious system of the day. They were a mediator between God and men. And it was the very height of spirituality and faith, right? To be a priest. The other, the Levite, was either on his way to fulfilling his calling as assistant to the priest or he had found comfortably a spot uh, as a protector and maintainer of the temple setting. That's what Levites did. Levites were entrusted with making the temple accessible in all practical and spiritual ways to those who had access to the temple. Both men were servants of the means by which people came to know and follow God. High callings, right? Very important places to play. Both assumed that where God was and what God was doing took place in the temple, the place of worship, and that in, and they did so through orders and regulations of cleanliness or of holiness, and that it took place through their own personal and significant practices of faith. And that the most important thing was for them to be where God is so that they could help other people be where God is. That's why they walked by him. It wasn't just, it wasn't indifference. As much as we would like to think it was just that, it wasn't indifference. They had a really important part to play in people's relationship to God. And only they could play it. No, if you were born a Levite, you were born into the, the priesthood. Nobody else could do this. And if they stopped, then it would keep people from knowing God. So how could they stop? Well, what would the best, the better thing is for people to know God, right? So how could they stop? We don't like it when we think of the story in that terms, because that, that tends to kind of question our, our own interactions. But here's the thing. What happened is that these priests assumed that they knew where their role was and what the importance of their role was. And I, but the irony of the story, and, and this is Jesus' brilliance, right? The one who acted most priest-like, who was the mediator of God's presence in the story, was a Samaritan. They were on their way, busy, hurried, distracted by this desire to help people connect with God, to play their role within it. And they missed their opportunity to actually connect people to God and to play their role within it. Again, perhaps because we're so far removed from the legitimate and elevated place of priest and Levite, we just see these two that keep walking by as hypocrites. How could they? They just turned a blind eye. Maybe that's why we tend to concentrate on what the guy who Jesus implies got it right actually did, the serving side. Our tendency is to focus on the service in the story or rather to be overly consumed by all those details of serving. And maybe I think that's why Luke couples this famous story of the Samaritan with an almost as famous I and mean, certainly as misunderstood story of Jesus sharing a meal with two women, Martha and Mary. So let's read the story. It's actually our story today and see if we can help make some of these connections into what it looks like for us to be ones who share meals as priests. In verse 38 of chapter 10, Jesus says, this says this. Now as they, that's Jesus and his disciples, went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Again, the idea here, welcome is a big word, right? It's not just simply, hey, come over, hang out. We're gonna turn the game on. You watch it. It's this hospitality. She is opening herself, her life up into Jesus and his ragtag bunch, right? 
So we don't just hear like, hey, Jesus was walking by, the neighbor came over for, for, for um, afternoon or whatever for a meal. This is like, no, I'm making space for them to come into my life, doing all the things necessary to show dignity, respect, to create a space for them to be able to be whole and complete. That's what she's doing. She's, she's acting out on it completely. She welcomes them into her home, to her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, or there is only one thing necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Now, I think it's important that we kind of state um, at least some of what's become true over time, right? That Martha and Mary have become characterizations within the church, right? Maybe you didn't grow up in the church. Maybe you don't, you, you've, you've never heard this story before. But if you've, if you've heard this story, if you've been in church for any length of time in your life, um, most likely you've been labeled a Martha or a Mary um, in some way, Right? Like, are you identified with a Martha or a Mary in some way? We've, we've created caricatures and characterizations of people based on Martha and Mary. Marys are the contemplative mystics at their best, right? Like at best, a, Mar a Mary is a contemplative mystic. They're ones who want to be in the presence of God and be in the presence of Jesus. Sometimes they're, they're intellectual pupils are the ones who are, who are always studying to know and to want to know more about God and what God is up to, to listen to his teachings. Or maybe they're just a little bit reflective and naive and kind of idealistic about this life of faith, that it doesn't require a lot more than just kind of hearing and listening and, and enjoying the moment. Any way you choose to think about Mary's, positively or negatively, usually they're the ones who get out of the actual work of, of ministry for spiritual things, right? Like at some level, like it's like, hey, the Marys kind of push aside the, the real work so that they can do the spiritual work. And so maybe, maybe you've never said that or heard that said, but, but if you think about it, like they're the ones who are willing to, to live in the spiritual for, for sake of the practical, right? Martha's are a little different. On the other hand, Mar to be a Martha is to be the, if you want to really get things done, doer. If you really want to be a part of ministry, if you really want to do ministry and serve others, you got to be a Martha. That's the ones who are, who are really in on it. One author describes Martha and her generation this way. She wrote this book in the, in the, the, the 80s, but, but um, um, Virginia Stem Owens, but this is the way she describes Martha. So I know it's a little dated for us, um, but maybe you can picture it. She says, Martha, in the, Martha is the church organist who never misses a service for 30 years. She's there every Sunday playing. Um, she's the head of the outreach committee. She's the president of the hosp hospital's auxiliary. She's the one who organizes potlucks and makes sure there's a, a poinsettias at Christmas and lilies at Easter. While she's the power behind the pulpit, she does not aspire to ordination. She's not trying to make herself flashy and be the front, the front of it. But let's be honest, she knows her place. And she is fully aware that without her behind the scenes support, the whole spiritual enterprise would come crashing down around everyone's ears. Now, maybe you don't want to admit that, but I've, I, know, I know some of us because I'm a Martha, that we're Marthas. 
Like we, we tend to be a little Marthaistic, right? Like we're like, hey, listen, like we're fully into the doing. And if we don't do it, nobody's going to do it. And so we've got to get, get in and do it, right? It's more than just willingness to serve. It's a desire to, to be like service is the thing in which you're supposed to do. This is the means by which you mediate God's presence to people. And it's easy to see from what we read that wisest characters of Jesus' friends um, have come about, especially when we focus on the many details of serving. After all, hadn't Jesus just told the story of the Good Samaritan as the ideal of faithfulness? I mean, think about it, right? The priests and the Levites skipped out on actual work of ministry for spiritual things, to help people connect to God. And the Samaritan did the service things, got down on his knees, bandaged the, the wounds of the, 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 the robbed man, took him into the inn, cared for him, right? Who wants to be the hypocrite that just passes by? Why wouldn't we want to serve? Why wouldn't that be our primary means? Why wouldn't we want to do that? Well, let's think about this for just a minute. Why does Luke connect these two stories? Why are these two stories told together? Why does the story along the Jericho Road paints a picture of hospitality and service and this kind of pictures this whole idea of, of welcome and the image of holiness? Why does it come right before the story of these two ladies? Why is, does it seem like in the story of these two ladies, though, that Jesus is kind of telling Martha that she missed it when she's doing what the Samaritan did? I mean, that, that's what she's doing right? She's welcoming. She's showing hospitality. And, and not only does she show in hospitality, she expects and thinks that that is the thing to do. So much so that she's willing to, to talk to Jesus, to confront Jesus and say um, to Jesus that maybe her sister should be doing the same thing. Again, part of it, I think, is helpful for us if we kind of understand who Martha is. I mean, isn't Martha, again, following an example of, that was set just in the story before? Again, she welcomed Jesus into her house. And that welcome would have included all the awkward entourage of Jesus, right? And it's an awkward entourage, right? I mean, you have, you have former um, tax collectors. You have fishermen. You have the educated, the uneducated. Um, you've got uh, guys who, as we've seen throughout the stories of the gospel, who don't necessarily get along and are always trying to one-up one another. And here's Martha asking them into her home and not and welcoming into her home would require a great sacrifice especially for someone like martha because you see um what we know about martha from this various stories in the and and from the cultural understanding of what's happening in the first century is that martha this woman of faith is an older sister she's the older sister of mary and of lazarus one of jesus friends and she's probably the eldest living member of their family as parents are never mentioned in any of the stories there's no father. There's no mother. She's probably the eldest living member. She's the matriarch of this family. But she's still an older sister. And most likely, we know Mary lives with her, but most likely Lazarus lives with her too, which would make things a little awkward, right? If you've ever lived with your siblings, uh, you already know, right? So having a, having a sibling as a mom in the head of your house, it's not Lazarus' house. It's Mary's house. It's pretty significant. She's most likely then not a widow because she's never mentioned as a widow. Widows in the New Testament would have been called widows, um, the widower of or the widow of so-and-so, but she's always called Martha. 
So she's most likely a woman, a spinster, a woman who's remained unmarried beyond the cultural typical age. She's, she's just an older unmarried woman. And in this culture, to be unmarried and have your own home as a woman is no small feat, right? She's a pretty bold, tenacious woman to be able to live the way she lives. She has to be pretty engine, have demonstrated a lot of ingenuity and entrepreneurship to live in a place, to have her own place um, at a time in history like this. Though she's probably not wealthy, she's, she's created her own home, but she's probably not wealthy because she has no servants to help her in her hosting, right? If she had servants to help her, then Mary could do whatever she wanted. But she's obviously got a lot of grit and has dedicated what she has to Jesus. And that's clear and evident, right? She is willing to risk a lot socially and economically even to be associated with this man and his crew. I mean, think about it. She's already on the social edge. She's an unmarried woman and she's inviting a group of men, married and unmarried, into her home, a group that is becoming a social divide in and of themselves. Yet she is genuinely Jesus' friend. And she speaks to Jesus with the respect and authenticity of a true friend. After all, she is doing what she thinks Jesus wants her to do. She's serving. She's welcoming. She's showing hospitality. So convinces Martha that this is the thing, that service is the thing, that hospitality is the thing, that she confronts Jesus about others not fulfilling their role in the kingdom's advancement. Well, not really others. I mean, let's be honest. She just says it about her sister. But I'm sure she was thinking about it, the other guys too. Again, as one who tends to be a Martha, like I've been there. It's like, okay, why is no one helping with this? Like, why am I on the one that's doing this, right? I'm not saying this for our church family right now, but like, listen, like this is where my personality goes. I once worked at, let me, I'll just put it this way. I once worked at a, a, a summer camp and, um, um, and it frustrated me to no end that like that there were people that worked with me that um, we had certain tasks to do in order to be able to do the ministry things that we did. And if we didn't, and they had no desire to get the tasks done to do that. They just wanted to go do the other ministry things. And so that's not a knock on them. That's just my, my bit. Like it frustrated me when they were like, hey, let's not get the things done that we need to get done in order to do the other things. So I was one who's, who, who can identify with Martha. I'm assuming that she's talking about Mary, but she's also including in her request a few other people in the crowd. Um, and so, but let's talk about Mary because that's who Martha mentions. We tend to dull Mary down into this kind of naive person who kind of, kind of is just sitting there lazily like a like a little kid who just went into Jesus and, and some of that we 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 say well but she did the good thing and that's that's her child likeness allowed her to sit at the feet of Jesus but Mary, Martha's question to Jesus actually assumes something different um, in the in the original language the way the question is worded is it assumes that when she when she tells Jesus in verse uh, when she asks Jesus in verse uh, 40. Um, when she went up to Jesus, said, Lord, do you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Um, meaning, like in the original language, the assumption is, the picture that's being painted, is that Mar Mary at one point was actually helping her sister. And at some point, Mary stopped with the physical act of service to go sit at the feet of Jesus. It's not that Mary was never helping. It was that she let Martha, when Martha felt like there was still a lot more to do. That makes sense. And so, so there's an assumption about Mary that Mary just kind of just kind of disregards all the physical service, all the immediate needs of welcoming, of showing hospitality, that she didn't do any of that. 
But the actual assumption of the story is that she did that. But at some point, she stopped the details of serving and sat with Jesus. At some point, she stopped, and Martha didn't. Isn't it ironic that Martha acts more like the Samaritan um, and assumes her sister acts more like the priest and the Levite? And yet Jesus corrects Martha, not Mary. Because again, what does Mary do, right? Mary does the religious thing. She does the, the worship thing, the be with God thing, the same thing that the priest and the Levite were doing. Martha does the Samaritan thing. I mean, wasn't Mary doing what the religious in the previous story was doing, passing by the apparent needs to show hospitality, to get to the spiritual duties of being with Jesus? And wasn't Martha doing what the Good Samaritan story teaches us to do? Serving, cultivating a place, a space for others to be welcome. So why does Jesus emphatically say, Martha, Martha, and encourage Mary, who has chosen the good portion, saying that her portion won't be taken away from her? Why do these two stories seem to communicate two different visions of our role in the kingdom? The key, I think, is in Jesus' revelation of Martha's soul. That's what Jesus responds to. He, in his response, Jesus looks into Martha and voices the seed of Martha's service. He says in verse 41, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. He didn't say you're doing many things. He doesn't say you're busy with a lot of things. He says you're anxious and troubled about many things. Jesus has used the word anxious before in Luke's gospel. A few chapters earlier in Luke 8, Jesus is telling that another familiar parable, the parable of the soils and the seed. Some seed, you know, falls on the, on the, the road and gets eaten up. Some seed, soil falls on shallow ground and pops up real quick and then dries out. But there's this other soil that falls on thorny, the other seed that falls on thorny soil um, that grows up, sprouts life, but then gets choked out by the thorns. This is the way Jesus described that when he was telling the disciples what the parable was about. He says in Luke chapter 8, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear the gospel, hear the word, hear the good news of God with them and for them, the good news that they were created to be with God and life comes from God is already within them to grow into fullness. But as they go on their way are choked by the cares. Now we read cares, but in the original language, it's anxieties. By the anxieties of the world as well as the riches and the pleasures of life. Both the, the, the good things in life and the troubles of life choked out from them their life with God. And their fruit, therefore, does not mature. The fullness of life as God intended it for them, with them, they never get to experience. Martha, as the story tells us, was, in verse 40, distracted by much serving. Her attention was on the many details but not on the detail of hospitality. There was an anxiousness about Martha's serving. Um, a, a, um, perhaps it was like the, the, the priest and the Levite of, if I don't do this, nobody, it won't get done. If we don't create this space, God can't work. If we don't welcome Jesus in, the kingdom won't come. His will won't be done on earth as it is in heaven. If I don't do this, it won't get done. People won't know God. There was an anxiety that built up within her around it. A control. And let's be honest, it's easy to be distracted when there's a lot to do 
and when you are the one who's supposed to make things happen, right? It's easy to get distracted by all the things to do, to serve, the needs to met, especially when the weight of people's connection to God falls on you cultivating the right environment, right? Especially when you think you're the one that's holding it up. That you're the one that, that this is what God's made you for, to be this person in order for people to, to come and to know him, to experience him. Ironically, what drove Martha was the same thing that drove the priest and the Levite to pass by the place where God was working and the place where they were meant to participate in their priestly duties. They were on their way to what they were supposed to do, what they felt this weight and calling to do, what only they thought they could do and missed what God was doing and what God had for them. Yet, as Jesus said in verse 42, only one thing is necessary. I mean, how, how crazy is that, right? He, he, he told Martha, you're, you're anxious and troubled about many things. You're distracted by all this serving, but there's only one thing that's really necessary. Stopping to engage. What's the one thing? It's stopping to engage. Again, Mary did not not serve. Mary did not not show hospitality. Mary did not not welcome Jesus in. She did all those things, but at some point she stopped to engage. And that's what the Samaritan did too. Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. She stopped her serving. Again, what, was supposed to, what she was supposed to do, according to her sister, according to our religious and cultural expectation, like this idea of what service and ministry looked like, she was doing it, Martha was doing it full force, and Mary was doing it too, but then she stopped. She stopped it. And she engaged with God. She stopped ministry and engaged with God. And Jesus said this was the one thing that was necessary. At some point, the hospitality changed from a focus on comfort and enjoyment of the guests to the attention on Jesus, on the presence of Jesus, the word sweeter than honey, choice preferred over the best home cooking as Lily read for us from the Psalms. Preferred even to the hospitality, the service of hospitality. Both Mary and the Samaritan stopped in order to engage in the presence of God with them and amidst the people that they were with. One enacting his priestly duties by mediating God's presence to a stranger. The other enacting her priestly duties of sitting at the feet of the one whom she reflects, receiving from him what she would need to share with others. The idea of being priest is not a one-way street. It's not that just that we take like and go and grab people for God and bring them into God. It's the idea that we receive from God and share what we have with God. That's what the priests did. They received the words from God. They received the communion with God and they shared and made that available to those around them. Neither the religious passerbyers nor Martha recognized their true role. They were distracted with much serving, distracted by trying to fulfill some vision of God's presence and activity and their responsibility and not attentive to the heart and action of God with them and their true role as holy priests. So what's the point of this? Why are we telling this story of all the stories of Jesus' meals? What's the point of sharing meals with others? Better yet, what's the point of our lives with God as apprentices of Jesus, as Peter had called us a royal priesthood, a holy nation? Jesus said that the, the purpose of our life with him, the, the what, it would, what it would functionally bring about is that we would be salt and light in the world. 
so that others might see um, the way in which we live, the good works that which we do, the, the, the way in which we, as we've talked about good works, is this, again, goes back to a holistic idea of hospitality. And they might glorify God in the way that we welcome people into our lives because we're welcomed by God into his life. Peter interprets, his interpretation sounds similar. He says in uh, chapter two of his first letter, we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Keeping our conduct among the Gentiles, those outside of the faith, honorable, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, on the day when they recognize God's presence. But then, like Jesus, Peter goes on to emphasize the earthiness, the mundane relationality of this divine participation as priests. He says this. He says, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. There's that word again. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace in order that in everything God may be glorified, his beauty shining through Jesus Christ. Listen, Peter, who had heard these stories too, Peter, who was sitting in the room uh, watching as Jesus interacted with Martha and Mary and all these kinds of things, this is how he processed it. He, he bracketed hospitality, this thing that we're called to, this thing that is the manifestation of our good works, right? With a demonstration of love, an earnest love, a, a love that, that is active, like the Samaritan's love, like Martha's love to serve, like Mary's love to, cre to create welcome, but then also sharing what's been received. The idea in, in uh, 2 Peter 4 of being good stewards of God's very grace, as he goes on then to say, those who have been given a word from the Lord, speak that word to the Lord. Those who've been given actions to do, they do so um, um, with the actions. It's this idea of taking what had been given by God and sharing it both physically and spiritually, what God's given us with others. What it means to be a priest Why we eat meals together. Why we show hospitality. Why we think this is what Jesus did to bring about the kingdom of God in his time and why it's still the thing we, we are to do in our time. Is because in doing so, when we stop to engage as priests, we illuminate the presence of God with us, for us, and for our neighbors. That's it. That's, that's what we're called to do. This is what Jesus is up to what he started in us and what he longs um, for us and our neighbors, for us to be whole and holy, safe and welcomed into the, the family of God and to extend that into to others. But for, in order for us to participate, we can't be distracted. We have to choose the good portion, the the detail. And the the detail is stopping to engage with God. God in the lives of our friends, God with us in his presence. And while that sounds impractical, while that sounds uh, too distant for us, um, really this is what the people of faith, the men and women of faith have been doing for the last 2,000 plus years. It's trying to live this priestliness. We learned a prayer a few months ago when we were discussing our life together in Jesus. 
a prayer that is meant to help us stop and engage, not just pass through, not just pass over, not just to do what we think we're meant to do and therefore miss out on what God is doing. And sometimes, like the, the priest and the Levite, sometimes leave people still broken and wounded and bandaged and unbandaged as we just kind of go our, on our own way. It's a prayer based on a simple habit that um, the, the Julian of Norwich did in every interaction she had. Every interaction that she had, whether what, for whatever reason, um, she had this habit of saying to herself, I look at God, I look at you, and I keep looking at God. She made this a habit that every time she interacted with somebody, whether a stranger coming along the side of the road, a person coming over for dinner, I look at God, I look at you, I keep looking at God. And so we, we put a prayer around this to kind of help us make a habit of it. And so let's do this to kind of close this part of our time before we eat together, let's pray this prayer. And as we go into this shared meal, let's go into this shared meal, looking at God, looking at one another, and continuing to look at God through one another. And maybe, just maybe, we can make it a habit to where we don't just do the things that the Good Samaritan did, but we actually choose the good portion, the thing that won't be taken away that allows us to be the priest that Jesus expects us to be. The, the prayer goes like this. Father, let me see you with us and for us in our past and in your presence. Holy Spirit, let me see their need and your searching and leading in my friend's life. Jesus, let me see how I can join your way for their good. Your way for their good. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the men and women of our faith family who um, in many ways over the years together, Lord, I've seen have striven to be more like the Samaritan um, than like the, the priest's who in many ways have striven to be a lot like Martha in the sense of welcoming um, you and others and us into life together. But I pray, Father, that we would not be distracted with much serving, that I know within our faith family and in my own life, there tends to at times be an anxiousness and an easiness in this thing that you've called us to in life, how that plays in work and in home and in neighborhood. So I pray that we would learn to stop and engage, that we would recognize your presence and participate as priests in the Son of Man, seeking and saving and serving, that we would see and recognize your presence, and in your presence, Father Lord, that we would, we would love, we would serve, we would give the things that we have received from you. And that we would extend and that our friends and neighbors and families would experience the same welcome that we have through Jesus. Father, we, we long for what Mary and Martha longed for. To be faithful, to be true to Jesus. So help us. Encourage us. Let us encourage one another to stop, 
engage. So that it, even as Peter says at the, the end of his letter, so that all may know the glorious beauty and splendor of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You're welcome to stand.
with me. This will be our benediction. Gracious and hospitable Father, strengthen us in the power of the Holy Spirit. As those who have a seat at your table, help us to love you with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Help us in the week ahead as those who have been welcomed to welcome the stranger. As those who have been fed to feed the hungry, as those who have been set free to sit with those in prison, as those who have been healed to touch the affliction, and as those who have been found to join you in seeking and saving the world. As those who have received, help us give generously, and as those who have heard, help us proclaim the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, lunchtime. Um, yay. Um, so here's what we're going to do. Um, we have um, barbecue in the back and a mixture of barbecue. Um, there are some, yeah, there's, there's potatoes or salad as well for those who are, who are more inclined to the vegetable side of things. Um, but, um, but we kind of, it's, it's hot. So we gotta, we're going to make a couple of options for you. Um, we, we can take the tables outside and I suggest we at least take some of the tables outside, um, for those that feel more comfortable eating outside. Um, but if for whatever reason, because of the heat, if you do not feel comfortable eating outside, we will leave some tables in here too, for you to come and eat in here. Okay. And so, but, um, but what we may do if you're eating in here is we may call you outside for just a minute to do communion together. Okay, cool. All right, so what I need from you is I need, if you have kids, to go grab your kids so that those that are helping with kids can come back in and enjoy us for, for lunch. Um, and then give us about five minutes just to make sure everything's all set up. If you're up for helping move some tables, they're pretty light. We can get those outside and we can use your, your, your help. Are they labeled? It's all labeled, sweet. Awesome. Thank you, Deidre. Way to go, Martha. Um, woo! Thank you. So, hey, so seriously, so what we'll do, just give us a couple minutes to, to help with, with that setup, and then we'll just enjoy lunch together. We'll get kind of lunch started, and then we'll, we'll share in communion, okay? Any questions, any thoughts? Great. All right, break. <laughs> 